Thank you, Ray. Let's pause and pray just for a moment. Lord, I don't, that song was new to me. Um, and I must confess, I didn't see the way it was going to end. Think about how the world needs Jesus, but the way it ends, it reminds me that I need Jesus. Not just others, it's not just them. My life needs healing. So, Father, as we take these next few moments to look into your word, thank you for the music we have sung. Thank you for the uh, prayer requests that have been made this morning, the evidences of your work in the world that have been acknowledged. And, Father, now I pray that the hearing of your word would bring life. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a minute this morning and just kind of pause our uh, trek through the book of Ephesians. Over the last three weeks, we've covered the first three chapters of Ephesians. We've covered it in kind of very wide swaths. Um, it's kind of been like an executive summary, if you will, of uh, sort of the main points, the key points, uh, the emphatic sort of repeated points that Paul has been looking at each of those chapters in Ephesians chapters one to three. It's around page 1079, I believe. If you don't have your Bible with you, grab one of the Bibles in the pew, page 1079. But we've been kind of going with these large, sweeping uh, sort of summaries of each of these chapters, but I, I think it's maybe important to pause and just regroup. And so that insert that Cindy mentioned that's on the, the backside of the um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner um, notification, there's, there's a bit of a summary there of, of kind of where we've been and what we've been talking about, and sort of some of the, the key emphases in each of the chapters. Now, we started, strangely enough, in Ephesians chapter 3. And as you can see on the outline, Ephesians chapter 3 is kind of a transition chapter. Um, and me as a transition pastor, it just, that sort of fits. There's an obvious connection there, why we started Ephesians chapter 3. That's not the real reason we started. We started Ephesians chapter 3 because that's the place where Paul reminds his readers the people at the church in Ephesus, what God's purpose is. Um, first, one of the early things I, I found out about Estevan Alliance Church when I came here was this vision statement that you guys have been working on. And we're going we're gonna to go back to it one more time just to kind of finalize it in, in a few weeks. There'll be a, a congregational meeting we're going to have and just kind of finalize it one more time. But you guys have been working on a vision statement and a purpose statement. In Ephesians chapter 3, there's a pretty clear statement about God's purpose. And there it is on, on your insert. The church is God's means of revealing his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This all-inclusive purpose of God, the seen and the unseen world, the visible and the invisible world, um, rulers and powers, and there's this phrase, principalities and powers, that comes up. In the, so that's kind of why we're just kind of pausing for a minute to kind of catch our breath as we've gone through Ephesians. We started in chapter 3 because of the significance of God's purpose statement and the, and the role of the church. The role of the church in accomplishing God. There's no other means God is using to accomplish this purpose. The church is it. So that's a pretty significant, almost exclusive 
statement by Paul about how God is going to accomplish his purposes. The church is his means of revealing his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms. So then we went back to chapter 1, and this kind of um, the phrase this, this morning in the song, Oh, how grace abounds. Chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians, Paul just goes phrase after phrase, and, and in, actually in the original language, verses 3 to 14 is all one long, which your English teacher in high school would tell you is a run-on sentence, and you wouldn't get very good marks for it. You'd probably get sent back, and it would have to be edited. Or if in your uh, um, university essay, you had this one run, almost the size of your first page, is one sentence, you wouldn't get, probably get a very good mark. But it, it's this wave after wave of adoration and, and acknowledgement of God's wonderful blessings and the things that God has done for the church, which is important because we know what's going to be said in chapter 3 now, right? We know the role of the church and the significance of the church and the expectation that God has placed on the church in the world. And now here's Paul sort of as he starts, he starts rolling out the resources and the blessings and the, the grace and the mercy and the redemption and um, the, the way God has just lavished his love on his people. So praise and adoration for God's wonderful blessing. Then chapter 2, there was how this grace and peace and Paul talks about in chapter 2 the way we were. And he talks about what we've become. And we talked about, uh, for by grace you say through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what we were, what we've become, and then, uh, okay, so what? It doesn't stop there. There is, there is more to the story. It just doesn't, doesn't stop with us. It's kind of the reverse of that last song, right? The song's talking about the world, and let's not forget it comes back to us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, yeah, it's about us, but let's not forget about the world. And so then Ephesians chapter 2 finishes with this picture of Jew and Gentile reconciled, brought together into what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, one new being, one new entity, uh, King James Version, one new man. So it, it's something that has never been seen before. Um, God takes Jew and Gentile in Christ and creates one new entity, one new thing that's never been seen before. It's a shock to the Jews. It's a shock to the Gentiles. It's a brand new thing that God is doing. And it's called the church. This new entity, this new being, this new body is the church. And so then there's this significance of chapter 3 again, right? With the purpose statement and the role of the church. And now we can see how the church has sort of come into being. Now, as it says there on your insert, there's, there's two things happening here. One is what God has done, God's action, and the other is our response. And I kind of use the, the, the verse from Psalm 118. The phrase in, the verse in Psalm 118 says, it is God's doing. And what we need to understand in Ephesians 1 and 2 is, this is, I mean, God's just saying, here's what I've done. Here's what I have done. And even when it comes to your faith, 
Even when it comes to our belief and our putting our trust in Jesus, what does Ephesians 2 tell us? It's not your doing. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift. Even your faith comes from God. There is nothing we bring to the table. In fact, and that's very good news. That's very good news. Because anything we bring to the table is tainted. Everything we bring to the anything we bring to the table is 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 poisoned by our selfishness, our pride, our need for control. Another song we had this morning. And, and whatever we bring to and and even Paul says in Ephesians two. Yeah, you, you need to respond, but even that response is a gift from God. Everything, everything comes from God. And so this, the verse in Psalm 118, it is God's doing, not just our salvation, his plans, his purpose, his goal, his end game, if you want a 21st century word that's used. God's end game is all set. It's determined. It's God's doing. And so the second part of this is God needs to let the world know. So the message has been delivered and the message has been received. In the ch case of the people in the churches at Ephesus, and when I say churches, I mean these, these little house groups, right? Probably, I don't know, a dozen or so little house churches throughout the city of Ephesus, 300,000 people, um, 30 or 40 people in, in a group, in a room, uh, scattered throughout the city of Ephesus. The message is delivered. The message was presented by Paul. Paul stayed in the city of Ephesus in the end, probably almost three years. The city of Corinth and the city of Ephesus were the two places Paul stayed the longest. And he was there almost three years. So the message was delivered. The messenger brought the message. The message was delivered and the message was received. It was received by faith. Okay, now what? Well, the third third bullet there. It's God's doing. The message is delivered and received. And now once it's received, that changes everything. And back to Psalm 118, it's God's doing, and it is wonderful in our eyes. It changes everything. Now I see things the way God sees them. Now I see people the way God sees them. Now I see life the way God sees life. And that changes everything. But the idea, if it's wonderful in my eyes, the idea is there, there's some response on my part. If I've been the beneficiary of something wonderful that God has done, I need to embrace that. I need to receive it. We talk about receiving Jesus. We, I need to receive it. I need to make that gift my own. Now comes the work of making God's way of seeing my way of seeing. I say, yes, God, I agree with how you see things, but now, boy, things got to change. I got, I got to change the way I see things so that I see them as God sees them. I got to see life circumstances the way God sees life circumstances. I got to change the people, see the people around me the way God sees the people around me. I need to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. So that's where my response comes in. It's when they say, yes, I, I agree, God, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And I want to receive him as my savior. But it, it doesn't stop there, right? Because I'm not all of a sudden going to see everything there is to see the way God sees everything. It's going to take time. It's the work of making God's way of seeing my way of seeing. It's the work of making God's way of seeing our way of seeing. Okay, now imagine for a minute. You're sitting in one of these little small groups, house churches in Ephesus, and your, your, your background is Jewish. You know the Old Testament scriptures. You've been taught them from a child. You've been observing the feasts and the ceremonies and the celebrations of the Jewish faith. You've become a Christian. Because when Paul came to Ephesus, the first place he went, as he went in all, every place, he went to the synagogue first. And so you're, you're one of the fruit of Paul's early labors in the city of Ephesus from the synagogue. And you're in this house church. And Paul's telling you, as you're hearing this, this letter read from Paul, as, as this letter is being read by the elder, whoever in that church, is telling you what God has done as far as Jews and Gentiles are concerned, and that together you and the Gentiles around the room with you are now one new person, one new being. And you have been reconciled. Jew and Gentile have been reconciled through Christ's death on the cross. In his flesh, by his blood, on the cross, that animosity, that hatred has been done away with. It is no longer. But you've got family back in Galilee. And you know that the Roman soldier sitting across the room from you, who has also become a Christian, was connected to the cohort that had wiped out your little village and your relatives back in Galilee. And so this letter is being read, and you're sitting there, and you're looking across the room at this Roman soldier who is also a Christian, and you're told that you and him, you have nothing against him, and he has nothing against you. Wow. In essence, Paul's saying, you need to deal with this, because here's how God has dealt with it. There is no more animosity. There, there is no more barrier. There is no more dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. You are now one in Christ as you sit in this little circle, in this house, in Ephesus. Now you've got to deal with it. You need to get over it. And someone said to me just this past week, yeah, but it still hurts. Wow. See, I, I think we kind of we kind of glaze over this, and, and especially Ephesians chapter 2, and what God has done in Christ, in his flesh, through his blood, on the cross, here's the result, and this is now the way it is. This is now the way it is. So, so for that... Jewish Christians sitting in that room as they look across the room at that Roman soldier who has now become a follower of Jesus too. There's some work to do. Wow. If it was me, there'd be some work. Maybe you're better at those kind of 180 degree turns. There's some work to do. Because it still hurts, right? It doesn't matter that God has... The, now i got to 
Now I got to work it out. Now I got to, Philippians chapter 2, now I got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Now I, now I have to work at putting into practice what God has done in me and in the world. Faith means seeing things as God sees them, seeing people as God sees them. And as if you know the letters of Paul, he uses a phrase sometimes about putting on and putting off. I got to put on Christ. I need to put on the character of Christ and I need to take off the things that are not of Christ. God's not going to do it for me. I got to do that. The work of making God's way of seeing my way of seeing. And so at the bottom of your insert, sorry, the insert doesn't reflect time proportions this morning, just FYI, but, but don't worry, we're not going to go all the way to chapter 6, verse 9 this morning, we're just going to do a little bit in chapter 4, but so then the last part of chapter, of, of Ephesians is, is sort of where these, these theological truths, these theological God perspective realities are now put into practice. So the doctrinal part now becomes the action part, the part of becoming like Christ. Here's, Paul says in 1, 2, and 3, this, this is who you are in Christ. Now you've got to live out who you are in Christ. Being, he talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind, about trying to find out what pleases the Lord. And so chapter 4, if you go to chapter 4 on page 180, in your, uh, if you're working with those Bibles, uh, that are in the pew, page 180, I believe, is chapter 4. By the way, someone has called Ephesians chapter 4, described Ephesians chapter 4 this way. No passage is more descriptive of the church in action than Ephesians chapter 4. No passage is more descriptive of the church in action than Ephesians chapter 4. So, uh, and I, I agree 100% with that professor's word. Page 1081, I believe, is, is, the, is uh, where you are in your Bibles in the pews. So let's break it down. First of all, verses 1 to 6. And we're not, I'm just going to kind of comment as we go here. So I may stop, and hopefully it doesn't mess you up too much. But chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you ever received. So Paul, this idea of living a life worthy, and the whole 1, 2, and th especially 1 and 2 have been... Uh, Here's where this worthy life you've been called to comes from. It's all of grace. It's purely the grace of God being lavished upon you, being poured out on you. Live a life that measures up to the wonderful grace that you've received. But notice where Paul starts. He starts about talking about as a prisoner of the Lord. As a prisoner of the Lord. The first, that's where he begins this whole transition in, into how we live out our faith. Good reality check, isn't it, for all of us that uh, life is tough, life is hard. And that reference, Voice of the Martyrs, in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll be taking time in the morning service for prayer for the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. But Paul, it's not just the reality of the hardship of being a follower of Jesus. There, there's this whole picture, isn't it? Paul is a slave of Christ. Paul. Paul is owned by Jesus. It just so happens that he's in prison when he writes this. 
And then he says, I urge you. Sound familiar? Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, I urge you by the mercies of God. Here it is. I urge you, same phrase, to live a life worthy of your calling. Verse 2, be completely, not just be humble, be completely humble. 100% humble. Maybe I just got some of you on my boat where we're working hard at this, right? Because be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. So parents, if you've got some kids in Caraway Street, you could go back to them and say, what did you guys learn about patience this morning? We read about it in big church. Be patient. Bearing with one another. Actually, some scholars would say a better translation is putting up with one another. Kind of puts it where the rubber meets the road. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, putting up with one another in love. Paul's just getting going here. He's just starting. Make every effort. Make every effort. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Verse 3. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I think most of us would say, Paul, if you're going to give the list of of things that we're united on, you probably should start with one Lord. Because doesn't that start with Jesus? One Lord, and then, then, then you'd have the list. Paul doesn't do that. Verse 4, there is, he starts with the body. There is one body. How important is the church? There is one body. That's where he starts. One spirit. That's my title for this section, filled with one Holy Spirit. There is one body and one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And notice how, how he, he just kind of climbs. So it's like he's, he's now climbing, and it's one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can't get any bigger than that. So this hard work and our oneness, the two things go together. This, this make every effort, work hard at it. Actually, a little later on in verse 16, you're going to get this uh, same phrase. Make every effort as each part does its work, verse 16. The last phrase in verse 16. Make every effort here early on and as each part does its work at the end of this section. Work and oneness go together. Oneness nudges me to work hard. Working hard re results in, in oneness. If I work hard at being humble and being gentle and being patient and putting up with my brothers and sisters, what happens? I think what Paul's saying, oneness happens, unity happens. But it starts with me working hard. 
verses 7 to 12. This is probably a more familiar section of Ephesians because this is the part where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. It's a bit of a tricky passage because there's some of that back and forth talk where Paul talks about Jesus ascending and then descending and then ascending and descending again. And I think sometimes, if we were honest, we just say those back and forth passages are sometimes hard to follow what Paul is getting at. But verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then he goes back to an Old Testament uh, reference from the Psalms. And he applies it to Jesus ascending at the ascension and then descending, which could relate to either the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That kind of descent, because the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Spirit is the presence of Jesus. Or it could mean his life on earth before he died. Either way, grace has been given as Jesus apportioned it. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors, teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity, there's oneness again, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of perfection found in Christ. To accomplish his goal, God gives gifts. God supplies the resources that are necessary to accomplish his goal. The power to accomplish them, his energy, and his energy results in a mature body. I'm a runner. I've been running for about 10 years. And one of the things I've discovered, because I didn't discover it at first, is that I need to replenish the resources after I run. And so after a few trial and errors with different kinds of protein shakes and finally realizing what protein is all about and how it helps repair and restore the muscles, I've got a good, actually, dependence on certain protein drinks. It's just bad. I, I enjoy drinking them better than I enjoy running. But I also know that they replenish and, and they, they repair the muscles. And so there's this, there, there's this sense of God's energy resulting in a growing, healthy, mature, well-functioning body that doesn't walk with a limp. Notice that the gifts, there's other places where Paul talks about gifts. Those, those places talk about spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter. The gifts God gives here are people. The gifts here are people. A little different perspective and a little different take on the gift. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. And we're going to be getting the search committee rolling. We talked about it at the last board meeting and sort of what the process is going to look like. But boy, here's, here's a place to talk about uh, pastoral expectations. What is the role of the pastor teacher? Verse 12. Well, to prepare God's people for works of service. The pastor is to equip people to do the work of service. Pastor isn't to do the work of I'm sure you've heard that if you've been around this church and you've been uh, connected to Alliance churches, you know that that's pretty much a standard. The pastor is is hired, not my favorite word, but that is reality. The pastor is hired, why? To do the work of ministry, which is equipping you to do the work of ministry. That's his work of ministry is equipping you, the congregation, to do the work of ministry. That doesn't mean he just sits back and is sort of the command and control guy and expects you to do everything while he tells you what to do. That doesn't mean he's the guy that's going to do it all. It's not his work of ministry. It's our work of ministry. 
ultimately, it's not the pastor equipping, it's not just the pastor doing, it's ultimately done together. That's where our expectations of the next pastor really begin, I think. To prepare God's people for works of service. Based on God's expectation of what we as a church are to be and what we as a church are to be doing. Thus, the vision statement is so important. Thus, the vision statement is so significant to what that looks like in the days to come. And notice again, Paul kind of... He just, he just keeps flying here right at the end until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, attaining to the full measure of perfection. And you just say perfection, right? Is there, is there more perfect than perfect? Full measure? Is there any kind of other perfect? I don't know, but he just kind of gets this picture and this image, and that's where he goes about what the church can look like when we function the way God wants us and has ordained us to function. And so he, he finishes with that picture in verse 13, and then here, here's the result, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. There's, there's two pictures, either, either a, a, a church, a congregation that just kind of is, well, not, Jesus asked us to be childlike, not childish. Be childlike. But it has something to do with stability. Interesting, and most, most of you I think know this verse later on in chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full arm of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm. No longer being infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Uh, one of my former board members at Living Hope uh, moved out to BC, and before he left, he said he had found this book in his stash of books. He knew I liked books, and um, he gave it to me. It's called Ephesians. It's by a guy named Tom Holliday, who was, I believe, on the staff at uh, at Saddleback Church. And so I started reading this after Dave gave it to me. Started reading it back in the summer, not knowing kind of where we were going to go. Holiday says, unity is recognizing the wonderful ways God has planned for our differences to work together. Let me say that again. Unity is recognizing the wonderful ways God has planned for our differences to work together. The point is, we are different. That's how the body of Christ works. We are different. And unity is recognizing the wonderful ways God has planned for our differences to work together. I don't know if Dan likes this designation, but I would call Dan our resident evangelist. We had coffee a couple weeks ago. I discovered his gift of evangelism. He has gifts and perspectives that I don't have. I need Dan. Right? We need each other. We need each other because we are different. Unity is recognizing the wonderful ways God has planned for our differences to work together. Why is that so important? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each work, each part does its part. The full measure of the life of Jesus in us. The full measure of the life of Jesus in us. Who wouldn't want to be part of that church? 
We know our world needs Jesus. We know our world needs Jesus. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone here this morning. But how will they see Jesus? Chris Tomlin's song, How Great Is Our God, says, All will see how great is our God. He doesn't really answer the question, how will they see? I think it's pretty simple, though, if you've been around church for any length of time. Through us. Through the church. That's the only way they'll see how great is our God. Through us. Jesus said it in John chapter 17. In his prayer for the church, Jesus said that all of them may be one. could stop there and leave it there and say, so how are we doing with that? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And you know where it goes from there. So that the world may know that you have sent me. I have given them the glory. Ephesians chapter 1. I have given them bountiful bountiful blessings and grace. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. Just in case the disciples weren't quite listening, they were kind of the secondary audience, but Jesus says, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved. That they all may be one, so that the world may know that God sent Jesus into the world. Because the world needs Jesus. And God only has one vehicle to let the world know.